0: At the beginning of December, you may remember I spoke to the importance of waiting. Advent is the time of expectant waiting. It's premised on the promise of the one who is to come. Mid-December, I went to a gathering at the block. It's called the 531. It's a storytelling gathering. It's hosted by some of the folks who are from Circle of Mercy, our sister church. It was a book release for Deneen Akers, who just launched her book for kids and adults. It's called Holy Troublemakers and Unconventional Saints. Recording artist Jennifer Knapp came to share her music, playing songs in between the four different stories about Holy Troublemakers and Unconventional Saints. Jennifer Knapp was giving away a CD with every book purchased, and then you could buy her Christmas album if you wanted it. There it was, mid-Advent. The temptation of Christmas was right before me. I handed over my credit card to be swiped in that square meter and I practiced my own form of resistance to my own liturgical boundaries. Then I took that CD to work and I put it in Sarah Best's computer, not mine, and I played it in the front office, not mine, and I decided I was ready for Christmas right then. I wasn't done with Advent. I was still observing the waiting, but I wasn't avoiding Christmas. Truth be told, pastors can't hold this boundary all that well because all of Advent we spent planning for Christmas. Even if we are observing Advent out in the open, we are making all kinds of preparations that are Christmas-centered and very much the opposite of waiting. There's a lot of frenetic doing in December in the church for pastors. All of that is to say the both and of Advent is real, not just for the stretches between Sunday mornings when parties and gifts and Christmas music are all over. The entire premise of Advent is lived in the nuance of both and. Waiting is, in fact, a spiritual discipline. And claiming the imperfect realization of that for which we are waiting should be done any time it is possible. Hope. Hope. Peace, joy, and love. In my early adult years, I was a faithful follower of the way, but a little put out by those who seemed to have claimed him. The first sermon I ever preached, I quoted Bill Moyers from PBS, speaking to how the religious right had hijacked Jesus. I don't walk away from an injustice easy, so I imagine that fueled my resistance and commitment to stay in the faith and to take back that which was being denigrated and diminished in word and deed by so many. As a pastor for the last ten years, I have faithfully lived into my calling, but one of the greatest gifts I have been given comes embedded in the Christmas tradition. Something I may have been able to grasp outside of ministry but something hard to miss from inside it. If you were paying close attention, you may have heard the repetition in the candle lighting throughout Advent. It starts with ordinary time, and it moves backward through the church calendar. Pentecost, Easter, Lent, Epiphany, Christmas, Advent. This cycle of our faith is to not be ignored. It is a vital part of how we move and we have our being. In the story of each of these moments is a parallel for the endless experiences we face as humans, created in the divine image, shaped and formed for the lives full of grace and compassion, justice, mercy, and peace to which we are called. If you only come to church every once in a while then you're apt to miss the larger story that can hold all of our story. Advent isn't about trying to hold off Christmas. It's about giving space and time and attention to this vital part of the story. A story that drives us toward hope, demands of us peace, opens us to joy, and is deeply rooted in the source of all things love. Today's texts are important parts of the Christmas story. Many Christians believe that the Isaiah text was a prophecy of Jesus because the author of the Gospel of Matthew makes this connection. If you see in the Matthew text, it is written that the prophets say, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The text from which this comes is the Isaiah text spoken today. Therefore, God will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. If you're paying close attention, there are a couple of things that these passages tell us. First, it is possible that Jesus was a vegetarian raised on curds and honey. He would have fit right in in Asheville. Second, as you may see or hear, what Matthew writes is not exactly what is documented as what Isaiah said. Interesting enough, these passages are vital to helping us understand why translations of our Bible matter. These passages come from the New Revised Standard Version, which remains the top choice for scholars of the Bible because of how it was translated. This has to do with the ongoing translation of the Bible throughout history. It's like a game of telephone in many ways. The influence of Rome on the Hebrew people and the emerging movement of Jesus was significant. Hebrew texts were not written in Greek, but in the 2nd and and 3rd century, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures takes place. It's called the Septuagint. The Christian Bibles we read have an Old Testament, what we acknowledge as the Hebrew scripture, and in most translations of that Old Testament, the text comes from the Septuagint. The NRSV, stay with me, directly translates the Old Testament texts from the Hebrew versions. Unlike the translations that translate the Hebrew to the Greek and then to the English. What we know is that the reference to Mary's unique condition is not found in the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah prophesied a young woman, which Mary was, but that is all. Matthew's reference to her condition is a product of the early days of the church, and when the references to it are found in the Hebrew text, it is because the translations have been translated through the lens of the Greek translation and the early church. The Hebrew word for young woman is Alma, the meaning of which is young, unmarried women. Many young, unmarried women are also virgins. So, why does it matter? Because we dangerously read the Bible today without understanding the lens by which the stories come to be. The world for Greeks and Romans, Jews and Christians of that time was quite different than the world today. As John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg explore the biblical text, they note the Bible is not void of divine conception. Divine conception happened all the time to barren and aged parents. What is unique about Jesus is a claim that sets to differentiate Jesus from the common divine conceptions of their day. Crossan and Board provide a healthy contextualization when they write, conception by human divine interaction was a cultural given in the pre-enlightenment world. So that although any specific example might be denied, the general possibility in that time was presumed. I think that we all could agree that's not as common an occurrence today. Though I would suggest that the divine is born in each of us and into the world all the time divine conception was a common designation in those days. And that designation for Jesus was an intentional designation. The importance of it was not a statement about the biology of the mother, though. Instead, they remind us it was a claim about the theology of the child. The reason why that matters is because we spend a whole lot of time caught up in confusion about the biology and it keeps us from the more important destiny for the child that is born. In his birth and in his death, he was set over and against the empire. And in his birth and in his death is a question for the faithful. To what are you born for and for what will you die? The answer for the babe born in a manger, for Jesus of Nazareth, for the Christ incarnate, is undoubtedly in every single instance love. It isn't the love highlighted in the Hallmark movies, it's a love without expectation and promise. It's a love that knows pain and suffering that doesn't always have enough, that crosses borders and boundaries, that offers grace and compassion. Love welcomes all people in and sometimes pays a price for it. Earlier this year, a UCC church in Ames, Iowa was vandalized when a man took down the church's pride banner and then lit it on fire. The man was charged with harassment, reckless fire and theft. The man had been thrown out of a bar before his actions and he was also um, he also had threatened to burn down the bar that evening. After being charged with that crime, the man acknowledged publicly and in police confession that he did the actions intentionally and specifically because of the issue of homosexuality. The story is steeped in difficult questions. While the pastor requested a restorative justice process, the offender maintained an aggressive position engaging with violent speech and body language while indicating his willingness to be violent again. The man was sentenced to 15 years in prison because he is a habitual violent offender and his crime comes with a hate enhancement as it is considered an intentional act of domestic terrorism against a protected class of people. This isn't simply about a man getting 15 years for burning a flag. And it is. So how does love arrive in this messiness? The pastor, Eileen Getty, wrote in her victim impact statement, The actions of our neighbor, Mr. Martinez, caused us to feel fear and confirmed our worst fears. There are people in our community who believe that our church is an appropriate target for hatred, harassment, and violence. She continued, Mr. Martinez's testimony and the evidence presented in court further intensified that fear and made violently clear that we do not live in God's beloved kingdom, but in the destructive and petty kingdoms of humanity. The county attorney, Jessica Reynolds, is quoted saying, I believe him to be very dangerous. That is why my office recommended the maximum sentence. As someone who believes in the restorative justice process and that rehabilitation is not best done in prison, this case is not easy. I won't claim to know a better solution, But I will honor the complicated space this church stands in. Knowing that the offender had a wife and children, the church did two things. Asked if they could pay the court fees of the offender. And asked if there was a way to help his family that would be losing the father. Love is complicated. It will ask us to be good to our enemies. It will ask us to step out of our comfort zone. It will empty us out and leave us waiting to be filled. It won't always protect us. Sometimes it will ask us to do foolish things. The destiny of the one we follow, the one who was born of ordinary parents, but with an extraordinary story, the one who brings forth extraordinary possibility in the places where ordinary imagination fails, the destiny of the one we follow is love. In Cleveland, Denison Avenue United Church of Christ responded to a local shelter that was forced to downsize capacity. Denison Avenue UCC offered its space to the dismay of their local council person. Visits from the city housing and fire inspectors, including six officials this last Friday, continued to pit the church against the city. Cleveland, which is where the home of the United Church of Christ is, it sits off Lake Erie. Have you ever experienced lake effect snow? It's cold in Cleveland. People who have no place to lay their heads at night when it's cold, die in the cold. On December 3rd, Denison Avenue and Metanoia, the shelter, started welcoming some 65 overnight guests, ages 18 to 55, seven nights a week, using a community hall plus a chapel and another small space. They plan to continue through April, with cots to be added and another room now being prepared. They hope to accommodate over 100 guests per night there for most of the winter. Love prepares a place for those without any other place to lay their head. Love says it's warm in here. Love ignores the rules and the regulations sometimes. The National United Church of Christ is committed to creating a just world for all. We are in the midst of a national initiative called Three Great Loves. Love of neighbor, love of children, and love of creation. If you go to the church's Facebook page, you can see the recent video that the National Church released about Beloved and our community. With footage from above and around, the short video highlights our partnership and our love of neighbor. Love looks like a tiny house. Sometimes love's budget doesn't always have an endowment, and it still chooses love in word and deed. Love is complicated, and it is born on Christmas. Love arrives to fearful and confused parents. Love does not always have an explanation. This last Sunday of Advent, be reminded that the power of love allows the ordinary to become extraordinary. That is part of the gift of the story of Christmas. Christ is born to ordinary parents all the time. Some people believe that the power of Jesus is made possible in his birth. But the significance of Jesus is made clear in his ministry and his death. His destiny was dangerous and unfair and it is born and lived and will die in love. Maybe you were hoping for something a little easier. It will not be. Amen.